This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters, joined by my co-host, Alicia Jenkins. By sharing a victim's life story, we hope to put the pressure on for you to get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Okay, guys, so this case was recommended by the OG crime watcher, the person who really hooked me on Dateline as a teenager, probably who hooked my mom as well, my grandma, my mom's mom. Hi, grandma. She's the best, so supportive of the podcast. Give her, you know, a hand for recommending this because this is something I needed to see. She recommended me to watch the Netflix documentary, Girl in the Picture. She told me we have to cover it. So I watched it. It was absolutely bonkers. I recommend all of you to watch it. But if you want a full on deep dive, like all the details you can find, I highly recommend the two books that the documentary is based on. I read both of these books two times each for this research, and it's still hard to comprehend all of the puzzle pieces in Suzanne's story. Both books were written by Matt Birkbeck. The first is titled A Beautiful Child, and the second is Finding Sharon. Again, highly recommend. This author, Matt, goes above and beyond just writing a true crime book. He was highly involved with the investigators. His book serves as a huge tool for law enforcement. He was involved with the family and honoring Suzanne. He just did a really incredible job and dedicated a huge chunk of his life to this. He details every piece of this case in an amazing way, and his books are where I got most of my information from. And because of the vast array of crimes that happened through this case, this is going to be at least a two-parter. I'm sorry, but you'll understand why as we dive into this together. In this episode, you're going to follow me along a very confusing timeline with more twists and turns than you'll be expecting. This is a case that is bizarre and it feels like fiction, but it's not. This is a tragic story of a real woman who endured years of suffering and may have never known who she truly was. She had everything stolen from her. With that, are you ready for today's case? It's September 12th, 1994. Michael Anthony Hughes is sitting in his first grade class at Indian Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw, Oklahoma. Michael's wearing a blue t-shirt with red sleeves. He's got red shorts on and black high top sneakers with the word hoop written on them. He's six years old and he's loving school. Just the fact that he is enjoying school is an incredible milestone for him. After being taken into the foster care system, Michael had been evaluated and it was determined he was 50% delayed in speech, learning abilities, and more. By this point in his life, he had been in a loving, consistent home for four years. 
So when Michael was two, he was placed into the care of Merrill and Ernest Bean. They haven't officially adopted him yet, but that's the plan. They have been in a tough fight for custody for years now. Michael's dad, Clarence Marcus Hughes, had originally asked for Michael to be placed into voluntary foster care while he dealt with the aftermath of his wife's death. But after being placed into the system, it was determined that Michael would not be returned to Clarence like originally planned. And since then, Clarence has been relentless in fighting the Beans to regain custody of Michael. Years of court appearances had dragged on, but just before this September of 1994, Michael's dad had been ordered in court to take a paternity test. He resists this and has to be ordered a second time to take the paternity test more than a year after it was first ordered, and still he refuses. Instead, he tries to submit a positive behavior morad- moradum, morad, I don't know how to say that, morandum, yeah. ba- basically just this document that someone writes saying that he is like well behaved he's a good person and this was written by Cecil Nichols who's a case manager at the El Reno prison and yes this means Michael's dad had served time in prison in Oklahoma but we'll dive deeper into that later on there's also a lot more that police know about Clarence Hughes at this point when the paternity test is being done but just keep that in your back pocket and I'll circle back around to that as well So regardless of his attempts to dodge the paternity test, it is ultimately done through a blood draw. And when the results are in, Michael's dad is told, you are not the father. DHS, short for Department of Human Services, had been mailed the results of this paternity test, and they have been handling Michael's case. They were pro-Bean family. They wanted Michael to be permanently adopted by Merrill and Ernest. So upon receiving the results, DHS lawyers rush to court. They request an order to terminate the rights of Clarence. It's December of 1992 when the state trial court agrees to the termination. So the man, once known as Clarence Hughes, loses all custody of Michael Hughes. He has been ordered to pay $150 monthly to DHS for child support, so that was also dropped when his rights are taken, and now Michael is going to be a bean. Merrill and Ernest submit the paperwork to get the adoption started. Years later, in 1994, Merrill is still uneasy with the man who had raised Michael from his birth to age two. He just gives them the creeps. So he had been with them for four years at this point, and they know he that Clarence had been pissed when he lost custody of Michael back in 1992, and that puts them on edge. There were times where their dogs would go crazy, barking like they never had before. Was it him? Another man in a truck had driven by their home. He drove slowly. He made eye contact with Meryl and this shiver went down her back because could that also be him? She had called DHS in a panic. Like, what description can you give me? I think that man wants Michael back. I'm really worried. But Meryl is told not to worry, so the Beans decide to just keep a good eye on Michael. They keep track of him and they watch out for him. Once this adoption officially processes, hopefully everyone can breathe a little easier. 
So all of this brings us back around to that September 12th day in 1994 when six-year-old Michael is just chilling in his first grade class, unsuspecting that his dad slash not real dad, who we know in this story at this point as Clarence Hughes, has just walked through the doors of the elementary school and into the office. By 1994, Clarence is known by a different name, but I'm not going to get into that yet, so I'm just going to refer to him as Michael's fake dad for a minute until we dive down that hole. So Michael's fake dad, who lost custody almost two years ago, is inside Michael's school by 9 a.m. He walks into the office of Principal James Davis, who is already busy with another meeting. James asks Michael's fake dad to take a seat outside of the office and wait until his meeting concludes. When it's fake dad's turn to speak with James, he basically says, look, you need to help me get my son and I'm ready to die. If you don't help me, you'll die because again, I'm ready to die and I don't care if I die. I'm doing this today. My son is Michael Hughes. He's in first grade. You have to help me get him. Oh my gosh, that would be so yeah scary. So terrifying. Like you think you're just what meeting. what do you do as the principal? I know. That was like, that's a it's hard like, thing. Do you get him or do you just call the cops and potentially die? I know. And I was thinking that too because it'd be so hard to like help someone take a kid. Like, you would feel so right. guilty. You wouldn't do that. But then it's also like, he's the principal at this school. There's a gun. He wants all the kids in the school, including himself and the other faculty, to be safe. So that would be such a hard position to be put into. Mm-hmm. It would. I can't. I don't even know how I would go about that. But along with this statement, the fake dad pulls out a gun James is shaking by this point, obviously not expecting his morning to go like this. And those thoughts race through his head. Like, should he help him? Like we just talked about. And ultimately, he does decide to comply as it feels like the safest option. James has to pull out a folder to determine what class Michael is in. There are eight first grade teachers. And when he reads the name of Michael's teacher, the plan is set in motion. Fake dad says, take me to the classroom, call Michael out, and then walk us to your car. I need a two-hour head start, and then I'll let you go, okay? And James agrees. So he walks with fake dad to Michael's classroom, peeking his head in and notifying the teacher that he needs Michael Hughes to come with him. Have him grab his stuff, too. So Michael puts on his backpack and walks to the door, where James grabs his hand and leads him down the hallway and out the front door of the school. Fake dad forces James to take them to his vehicle. It's a 1994 white Ford F-150 XLT. It has a white camper shell on it and James jumps into the driver's seat while fake dad jumps into the passenger seat and they put Michael into the back seat. Fake dad is still pointing his gun at James and he can see now that he also has duct tape and handcuffs with him. What is going on? Is he going to kill me? But fake dad seems appreciative that James is helping him. He even tells him thank you. James is a bit taken back because he doesn't want to be helping this man kidnap Michael. And he just replies to the thank you by saying, I don't really have much of a choice. 
So they leave the school and they drive a little more than a mile down Indian Meridian Road before fake dad orders James to pull off to the side and park behind some hay bales. They leave Michael in the truck and they head into the woods. James Davis is 54 years old, 6 foot 4 and 215 pounds. But Michael's fake dad has a gun pointed at him through this entire thing, and that's terrifying. So when he tells James that he's going to tie him to this tree, he continues to comply. James is forced into a squat position with his back against the tree. His arms are put behind him around the tree, and he is handcuffed there. Duct tape is put over his mouth. Fake dad has James tell him how to get into the back of the truck with that camper shell on it. And then he tells him that he will call for someone to come help James in about two hours. And with that, Michael takes off with his fake dad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is pretty gutsy. To just walk into a school. Yeah. I know. Like, this isn't your kid. A paternity test has proved it. Why are you kidnapping this kid that's not yours? Like, I do understand a kid that's not biologically yours can be, like, yours if you raised him. But, like, you got your rights taken four years ago and you're not his dad. So move along. I know. I'm, I'm like, kind of surprised the principal did that. But kind of think I might do the same thing, too. I know I think from the outside looking in same because I was like oh my gosh why would you help him kidnap that kid like that's so sad I would never help someone kidnap a kid but then also like I have my own kids at home I want to live for and all those other kids in the school that need to live and it's just I don't know you'd have to think so fast and well yeah he could have he could have made his way down to the classroom and shot the classroom up. Exactly. And killed a bunch of kids. If if James hadn't helped him, that's probably exactly what he would have done. Just started shooting. Yeah. So, very sad situation. I, I do feel really bad for James because I'm sure he got, like, some flack for it. But also, like, what do you do? And he was a victim here as right. well. Yeah. Yeah. And he was saving the rest of his kids, but at the expense of... Yeah. I mean, even... Michael. Yeah, because even him going with this, who we know as Clarence, I would even say that wouldn't necessarily save his life. Like, it does seem almost like he did it more for the faculty and the students at the school, because, like, who's to say if you go with him, he's not going to shoot you? When he ties you up on the tree. Yeah. So I think he probably made the right decision, but it is very sad that he's able to get Michael. Yeah. And now when they take off, James is sitting there handcuffed to a tree, completely alone and stunned at what had just happened. He's grateful to still be alive, but he's also scared that the man wouldn't call for help and he would just be stuck out there. How is anyone going to find me? His legs are on fire. He can't sit in this wall sit squat position for hours. I'm sure you've done wall sits before. Like that hurts. And that's the position he's in. Yeah, I can last like 45 seconds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) he's like, this is not going to work. And he starts shimmying up the tree trying to stand. I'm assuming it was like pretty tight and he probably just got his arms all scratched up trying to scooch his way up but 
it works and he also you like moves around his mouth to get the duct tape off of his lips and then he starts yelling out for help he's screaming and this goes on for hours before someone hears him and he is rescued just a couple hours later so was he rescued by just a random person or did the guy call honestly the book i read didn't say so but i would assume it was a random person because it doesn't dive into him calling anybody i think he just screamed out until someone heard him but it was a couple hours later so maybe it's like really never talked about so who is little michael anthony hughes Where did he come from and why was the man who he thought of as his dad until age two not his real dad and why is he kidnapping him now? Well, we are going to have to jump back in time to get to the bottom of this. Michael was born in Tampa, Florida on March 21st, 1988 to parents Clarence Marcus Hughes and Tanya Dawn Hughes. Tanya's maiden name was Tanya Dawn Tadlock. If you listened closely earlier, you heard us say that Clarence had voluntarily voluntarily given Michael to DHS for what he thought would be a temporary stay while he went through the grief of losing his wife, Michael's mom. It was April of 1990 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Delbert Ray Collins is driving along the road with Sean Peters and Roy Kibbles. They had just exited the interstate, heading to the motel they would be staying at. It's the middle of the night, early morning hours, so it's dark, and on top of that, it's raining. Right after passing a truck stop, Sean Peters sees something strange on the side of the road. He's like, wait, do you guys see that? Now, Sean and Ray are looking out the back window, squinting, trying to focus on the object they had just passed by that seemed so out of place. And they see it's a high hill. And it's sort of a relief, like, whew, I guess someone just lost a shoe. But as Delbert drives a couple hundred yards further down the road, he realizes that someone didn't just lose a shoe. That shoe was knocked off of someone. He asks his friend if they're seeing what he's seeing. Is that a body? And it is. It's a woman face down and she's moving. She doesn't look like she's doing good. She's convulsing. They don't have cell phones, but they are right by the Motel 6. So Delbert rushes into the parking lot and runs inside to ask the front desk to call the police for a person laying on the side of the road outside. She's in bad shape. Paramedics show up first to the scene and they're headed downtown to the hospital before police even arrive. This woman is alive and there's hope she can be saved with quick intervention. As they arrive, the woman is crying out, Daddy, Daddy. She can barely get the words out as she's mostly unresponsive. Her eyes keep opening and closing and painful moans come out from her now and again. Once she's admitted to the hospital and the doctors take over, police want to notify her family so that she, that, so that someone can be here for her, but there's a problem. She doesn't have any identification on her. She looks to be in her early 20s and the only items at the scene are a bunch of scattered groceries, headphones connected to a portable radio, a windshield wiper, a broken radio antenna, and flecks of red paint. Those last few items were believed to be from the vehicle that hit her. 
she is the victim of a hit and run. Police theorize that she was walking along the road with her headphones in, listening to that portable radio. She didn't hear the vehicle approaching her from behind, and she is struck, thrown to the side of the road, while the driver takes off, fleeing the scene. So what to do now, with little information as to who this woman could even be? Police start scouring the area. They question people at the motel, the nearby truck stop, and the diner sitting between. The clerk at the truck stop tells police that the blonde girl came there about 12.30 a.m. to purchase those groceries. From looking at the scene, it seems that she was walking back towards the motel afterwards. People eating at the late-night diner report that they didn't hear or see anything. No cries, no tires screeching. What a tragedy. Back at the hospital, the young woman is given medicine to stop her convulsions. Still unconscious, doctors start to examine her condition and their hearts drop to their stomach. She has injuries from the accident, of course, two large bruises on the back of her legs above the bend of her knee but below her bum. So right there on the back of her thighs where the bumper of the vehicle seems to have struck her first. From here, it's determined she flies backwards, rolling up onto the car and hitting the back of her head before going over the back of the vehicle and landing back onto the ground. A hematoma injury is found to come to this conclusion. Through all of this, she didn't have any broken bones, open wounds, or visible bleeding. But those injuries aren't what doctors feel taken back by. This woman is scratched up all over her body, and among those are fresh bruises, and many old bruises, in various states of healing. It looks like she was being severely abused before this hit and run even occurred. And that night, she is determined to be in stable but serious condition. Police may not know this night who she is, but we know this is Michael's mom, Tanya. So at two years old, this little boy loses his mom before being thrown into the foster care system. And then the wild events of the next four years occur leading up to his kidnapping. It had to have been such a confusing time for him, I'm sure, because colleagues saw that Tanya and her little boy were just in love with each other. So they were really close. He loses his mom. And then like from there, I just feel like his little life spirals. Aww. So was she getting beat? Yes. Doctors can tell she was being abused. By Clarence? Probably, right? Because that's her husband. Yeah. So, but at this point when doctors are examining her, they don't even know who she is. Oh, okay. They just can tell that this woman, who to them is a Jane Doe at this point, has just been abused and now she has been hit in this hit and run. She's alive. She's stable but it's pretty serious. Yeah, it's kind of scary too because she's by a truck stop. Yeah, and she's like on a pretty desolate road just walking in the middle of the night. I mean, I don't even like to go to my mailbox in the middle of the night, so. Yeah. And it doesn't take long for everyone to find out the identity of the victim in this hit and run. Once the sun rises after the night Tanya is brought to... Wow. (laughs) I can't talk. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't say... Presbyterian. (laughs) So once the sun rises after the night Tanya is brought to Presbyterian Hospital in downtown Oklahoma City, her husband Clarence just shows up telling police, I think my wife's here. What happened? I'm hearing she was hit by a vehicle. Is she okay? We're traveling with our two-year-old son from our home back in Tulsa here to Oklahoma City for a gynecologist appointment. 
We checked into Motel 6 yesterday at 3 p.m. and she left to pick up groceries late in the night. She even called me from the gas station because she couldn't find baby food and I should have stayed awake. I fell asleep and I just found out about the accident this morning. Clarence states that when he wakes up that morning, he's in a panic. Where is his wife? She should have been back by now. Immediately, he goes to the truck stop asking if anyone saw her leave after shopping. He knew she made it there to the store because of that phone call from the payphone when she was unable to find the baby food. There at the truck stop, the clerk relays the information she knew, telling him that there was a woman found on the side of the road last night. She was a victim of a hit and run, and they took her to the hospital. Police check out the vehicle Clarence is driving. They have to make sure it wasn't him who did this to her. I mean, it's always the husband, right? And of course, we know that's not necessarily true, but spouses are very first to be looked at. And even if this was an accident, a hit and run case is still a crime. I was thinking it was him. Yeah. So they checked to see if it was him. But it wasn't? It's not. His vehicle is cleared. and He was driving an 88 Oldsmobile that was dark blue and matte make sure to mention in his book, A Beautiful Child, that the radio antenna is still intact. And we know the radio antenna and windshield wiper were ripped off the vehicle she was hit by. And the red paint chips indicated it was a red vehicle. So the dark blue paint of this Oldsmobile just doesn't fit. And there was also no damage that was visible. And by the morning, Tanya's blood pressure is high. It's sitting at 155 over 105, but everything else is completely stable and at normal levels. Tanya is mumbling, but still very out of it. Only a few words can be made out. She's again heard saying, Daddy. Tanya mostly remained in this deep coma-like sleep, recovering from that large hematoma on the back of her skull. The definition of an intracranial hematoma is a collection of blood within the skull. It's usually caused by blood vessels that burst in the brain, and it may be caused by some sort of trauma, like a car accident or a fall. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Did you learn about hematomas? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, just got that definition on off Google, so thought I'd check first. It's basically a bruise. Okay. And then, like, just causes bleeding, yeah. like, in the brain, almost, like, if it's on the head. Yeah. Okay. So, with this hematoma, they basically just have to wait it out and see how she comes around through her healing. Doctors relayed that they were hopeful for a full recovery. They were not sure it would happen, but her vital signs being completely normal is a great sign. Doctors recognized Clarence's strange behavior, though, as he's told this information. There's no emotion. Worry for his wife is not coming through. Relief that she may survive isn't expressed. And he doesn't touch her. No hugging, no rubbing, no tender comforting. He just stands there looking down at Tanya. He motions to the nurse asking her to bring him a paper and a pen. And after that, he tells the doctors he needs to be alone with his wife to process everything and just have a moment. And that's completely normal to give a family alone time with their loved one. But what isn't normal is that when the doctors return to Tanya's room, her husband is just gone. She's there alone again. And all that's left behind is a note on the door to her room and it reads, no visitors. And when Clarence had left the room, he took all of Tanya's things, literally everything, including her clothes. Weird. Yeah, so he had already rubbed doctors the wrong way in like their communication with him and then 
this weird way he leaves and the no visitors sign that he creates, not the hospital, they just, they think he's strange. That's a little strange. He's definitely weird. (laughs) And before the accident in April of 1990, Tanya had been living in Tulsa, Oklahoma with her hubby Clarence and little Michael. She worked as a stripper at the Passions Nightclub, and when she applied, she let them know that she had been a dancer previously for another nightclub over in Tampa, Florida. She told everyone that she was originally from Alabama. Now, I think Tanya was, like, super gorgeous. I think everyone else would think so, too. She has the blonde, flowy, Farrah Fawcett hair, super pretty face, little petite nose, a really pretty smile. She's just, like, adorable. But in the book, it's said that during this part of her life, the other dancers and people at Passions Nightclub saw her as a little odd. It said that she stood out due to her figure. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that people thought she had a lot of work done by a shoddy plastic surgeon. So it was clear she had breast implants, but they looked extremely round, rock hard. It didn't quite look right, um, according to these people. But regardless of their thoughts on her body, she had a contagious, bubbly personality that just really drew people in, and this is why she's hired. Okay, don't you want your breast implants to be round? No, I think that they were, like, very odd. They didn't look like they were done right. Like, they, it's mentioned multiple times in the book that they, like, kind of threw people off. And there is a reason for that, which is A, why it's mentioned in the book. And then I think the other reason it's it's even mentioned in the book is because she's obviously applying at a strip club. So Tanya gets hired at this nightclub and she's one of the hardest workers the club had ever hired. She was a mom to a little boy, but she was working seven days a week. She only missed on holidays like Christmas or Thanksgiving, and that bubbly personality drew the men to her as well. And she did look so young. One of the little roles she played on stage was that of a teenager wearing a pleated skirt with a low-cut sweater. And like, nope, yeah. A (laughs) schoolgirl. I was gonna say, nope, I don't like it. Yep, a little schoolgirl. Gross. Literally what I like wrote down here was like don't like that don't blame her. I like I don't blame her at all it's just gross to me that this is what these grown a creepy men want to see <laughs> like they're fantasizing about a little girl but they're probably like in their 30s 40s 50s they're probably all married it's just like no that's a no for me that's a no yeah hard no yeah so she did look really young which is why she fit this again I don't blame her, but people are just creeps. I hate it. Now, while Tanya's working at Passions, she gets close with another dancer named Connie. And I think in the documentary, this girl makes an appearance, but her name in the documentary is Karen Parsley. The book was published back in 2004, and the documentary was just released this year in 2022. So I'm thinking possibly Karen was called Connie during her time at the strip club, or maybe it was a nickname, or maybe she did not want to be full on named in the book back in 2004. What is the documentary? Uh, The girl in the picture. Okay. And I'm like pretty positive that this is the same person. I don't know why she's called Connie in the book, but that's what I'm going to call her throughout this because the book is 
pretty much where I got all of my research. I thought I watched this documentary, but I don't remember any of this so far. So (laughs) I obviously didn't watch it very well. Well, the documentary, there is so much. I read two books. And so the documentary in an hour and a half, I, I don't even think it dives crazy deep into everything. It like says a lot of the parts really quickly because it has to, to fit it in. Oh, okay. So you probably like just didn't get yeah. a lot of this info. I'm, I don't remember any of it <laughs> yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the documentary. Grandma told me to watch it and she thought it was really good. Exactly. Yeah. It and that's who told me to watch it too. And it it was really good. Yeah. But I mostly good. Yeah, I think the documentary's really good. It's just like not like the book. Like it is like the book. It's just there's so much more in the book. Hmm. Yeah. So basically the girl Karen Parsley's Parsley from the documentary and Connie in the book. I'm like 99% sure is the same person. But since I'm doing, like since most all of my info came from the book, I'm just going to keep calling her Connie because I couldn't find anywhere that it says specifically Connie is Karen. But what she says in the documentary and what's written in the book about Connie are the same things. So I'm pretty sure it's the same person. We'll be calling her Connie. Okay. Anyway, both girls were young and Connie loved how smart Tanya was and her thirst for knowledge. Tanya was always reading things between dances, crocheting, and her intelligence just seeped out when she spoke. This always made Connie wonder why Tanya was in this predicament, working as a dancer, living in a rundown trailer home with an abusive husband that was at least twice her age. Connie knew Tanya could do so much better, so why was she settling for him? But Connie would remind herself that many of the dancers here had traumatic pasts, and she didn't know Tanya's backstory. Really, all she knew is that Tanya was a young married mom, and Connie didn't like her husband. No one really did. Clarence was overbearing to the max. He drove her to work, picked her up, called the club every hour to check in on her, and he required her to come home with a minimum of $200 each night that she worked. This is why she worked so hard for her money. Everyone could see that she was terrified of the outcome if she didn't. Anytime she didn't quite make the 200, anxiety would radiate from her. The other dancers would even offer to pitch in to help her so that Clarence wouldn't retaliate, but she always declined. Tanya had a good heart. She wouldn't take her colleagues' hard-earned money from them. She would just take her punishments, always returning the following day with injuries such as fresh bruises. That is so sad. I know. Like, what a douche. He's just not a good guy. I feel bad for people that can't get out of those situations. Me too. I'd like to think I'd just be like, screw you, I'm out. I know, and I think that is, like, the easiest for everyone to say. I mean, even, like, if I think of even someone I know in a bad, like, situation, it's like, oh, just leave them. But I think it's so much harder when you're the one in the situation especially when it comes to an abusive relationship yeah and that's kind of how all her co-workers were like just get out but she really was scared so like everyone that she worked with was always begging her to leave Clarence they literally loathed him and his presence always gave them the heebs <laughs> the heebs <laughs> what the heebs I like that. The, the heebs the heebs the heebie-jeebies the creeps <laughs> Ugh. 
I get those all the time. I know. So even though everyone's really pushing her to do this, Tanya does ultimately ask Connie to stop pushing her because it's something that would be so dangerous for her to do. She explains that it was not possible for her to leave him. She had tried before, but he always finds her and he threatened that if she tried again, he would kill her. Everyone, including Tanya, believed him. Clarence was also good friends with one of his neighbors there in the trailer park, a sheriff's deputy, and Clarence himself was a member of the Tulsa Fraternal Order of Police. According to Wikipedia, a fraternal order of police lobbies Congress and regulatory agencies on behalf of law enforcement officers, provides labor representation, promotes legal defense for officers, and offers other resources. So basically, he's connected, he's dangerous, and Tanya's scared of him. She couldn't leave. The other dancers hated this for her. They watched her go through the motions of her life. She was always exhausted from constantly working. She would even fall asleep in the laps of some clients. She needed help, but no one knew what to do for her. They couldn't force her to leave him. There were many times that Clarence would drop Tanya off for work and one of her colleagues would be in the parking lot. On multiple occasions, dancers had yelled out to him, quote, Tanya should leave your sorry ass. And he always came back saying he would kill the bee if she tried. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you'd think he would beat her for telling people or he'd blame her for them saying that. Yeah, I'm sure he did, but I also, I don't even think she told them that much. I think they just hated yeah, him. Yeah, they from, could just see it, the physical yeah. abuse. But he did probably do that, like blame her for it, I'm sure. No, oh, man. Just a sad situation, and it's much worse than it leads on here, so... During the time at the cl- during Tanya's time at the club, she was able to make connections with some other men who made her feel more loved. She starts, you know, having some boyfriends, which I don't blame her at all, especially once you know the whole story. So, she had started dating a man, Chris Matheny, Matheny, I don't know. But the more bruises he noticed, the more upset he got. He wants to confront Clarence. He's angry to see Tanya being hurt, but she begs him not to confront, telling Chris that Clarence will kill him. Just stay out of it. Chris really didn't care, really did care for Tanya, but the odd dynamic of their relationship was just too much for him. He couldn't sit by while Tanya was being abused, and he knew she was never going to leave her husband. Soon, their relationship ends. And after this, Tanya connects with Kevin Brown. He was a frequent client there at Passions, and he was in college, so he's younger, closer to her age. By the time the two start dating, Kevin knew about the turmoil in her marriage and the way she was suffering. As their relationship progressed, Kevin begged Tanya to run away with him. He had connections and money and family that can help them. He could save her from Clarence. At first, she's like, no, it's not possible. I don't want you dead. I don't want you to die. And most of all, I want to keep Michael safe. Michael is always with Clarence. I won't leave him behind and I cannot get him away by myself. Tanya was never allowed to have Michael alone. Another cruel way that Clarence controlled her life and forced her to stay with him. He knew she would never leave her son behind. Michael was the only bright light in her life, and she knew Michael would not be safe with Clarence. 
The little boy didn't connect with Clarence at all. He didn't want to take care of him while Tanya worked. That was just the only option. So he would strap Michael into his car seat for hours on end, often leaving him alone. This is why when Tanya came around, Michael clung to her. They were inseparable. And as Tanya falls more in love with Kevin, her need to escape Clarence also deepened. She wanted a life with her son and a man that actually that she actually loved. Like she wanted this more than anything. So she starts to trust Kevin. She did think he could help her. Maybe they really could get away. Tanya also told told Kevin that something had happened that month. It crossed the line. She wouldn't tell Kevin what it was, but it was enough to shake her. And now it was time to go. Dancers at Passions were made aware of Tanya's plan to leave just weeks before the car accident. It was devastating that Tanya suffered this hit and run so soon after deciding she would finally take her life back from Clarence. The other girls at Passions noticed this huge change in her after she came up with a plan to go off with Kevin. She was happier, she was real, she was not so secretive, and they could tell she was excited. This made them excited. They never thought the day would come that she would be free. She told Connie, quote, If he finds out, he will kill me and Michael, but I can't stand him and I can't stand being around him. I'm going to get away. Connie would miss her friend when she made a run for it, but she knew this was going to be an amazing and much-needed life change for Tanya. However, on April 25th, 1990, a call comes into the club and it was for Connie. The owner of Passions, J.R. Buck, hollers over to Connie. It's Clarence. There's been an accident. The first thing Connie asks Clarence when she picks up the phone is, what did you do to her? After telling her that he didn't do anything to his wife, he tells her that Tanya is in the Presbyterian Hospital in Oklahoma City, but that Connie cannot visit her because the doctors said there are no visitors allowed which we know he's the one who put the no visitors sign up, not the doctors. And Connie, she scoffs at him when she hangs up the phone because she doesn't believe Clarence for one second. She didn't even know Tanya was supposed to be out of town in Oklahoma City. She just had a gut feeling that Clarence had something to do with this accident. It wasn't, it was just too coincidental. He was garbage, an abusive man, and Tanya just so happens to be hit by a car right after she makes a plan to leave her marriage and run off with Kevin. It doesn't sit right. So Connie grabs her stuff. She lets Tanya's boyfriend Kevin know what's going on, and they're off to Oklahoma City. Clarence might have told Connie that there were no visitors allowed, but that was strange since the nurses let Connie ride in and rejoiced when Tanya responds to Connie's voice. The nurses also allow Kevin in, and they notice that he seems much more comforting to her than her own husband had been. When Kevin speaks to her, Tanya's head would move towards his direction. Technically, she's still in this comatose state, but her responses were good indications that she was coming out of it. The doctors were happy to see people here looking out for her. One doctor pulls Connie to a quiet space, and he tells her this was no car accident. Connie already knows that it wasn't an accident. No one knew how Clarence was involved. He just had to be. Connie had noticed fresh scratch marks on Tanya's chest when she was laying there in the hospital. While they are at the hospital, Connie relays her concerns about Tanya's marriage and the abuse she had witnessed, helping solidify doctors' opinions that something was off here. By the end of the conversation, Connie is told by the doctors that with the positive signs during her and Kevin's visit, they're pretty sure Tanya is on her way to a speedy recovery. 
With the good news, they're able to head back to Tulsa and inform Tanya's other co-workers at Passions that she will be back soon. She's so strong, that hit and run didn't get her, she's going to be okay. Clarence had to dampen the mood, of course, by calling that evening and yelling at Connie about her visit. Didn't I already tell you there were no visitors allowed? Those bitches in the hospital will be fired. No one is allowed in that room. Connie brushes him off, rolling her eyes while she's on the phone like, okay, Clarence, well, she's my friend and I'm going to visit her if I want. After he takes a deep breath, he changes his tune real quick, asking Connie if she wants to buy some furniture. He needs to get rid of some things from his trailer in Tulsa because he's moving now to be closer to Tanya down here in Oklahoma City. Connie is confused, like, what? Why would you be moving? It rubbed Connie the wrong way. Why is he trying to get rid of his stuff? She calls the hospital to let them know she's super suspicious of Clarence and they should keep him away from Tanya. The next morning, Connie is called by the hospital and told that Tanya had deteriorated the previous night after her husband had visited. She's going to pass away and if Connie wants to say goodbye, she needs to head to Oklahoma now. She starts the one and a half hour drive immediately. Clarence was also notified of the deterioration. He was already in Oklahoma City, but he told the hospital staff he wouldn't be there to say goodbye. When Connie arrives, it's too late. Tanya had passed away alone, only in the presence of her nurses. Connie was able to see Tanya post-mortem in a separate room. Her and Tanya had spoken about the afterlife and what they both wanted. She knew Tanya wanted to be buried just like she did. But Clarence demanded at the hospital, the hospital staff to cremate Tanya immediately following her organ donations. So Clarence, he did make it to the hospital, not to say goodbye, but after Tanya had passed away, he comes to obviously demand his wants now that his wife has died. He also tells Connie that there will be no memorial service or funeral. And Connie bursts into tears, arguing with Clarence that this isn't right. He isn't doing what Tanya would have wanted, but he doesn't care. With tears streaming down her face, Ta Connie kisses Tanya's forehead and cries out a goodbye. On April 30th, 1990, Tanya's organs are harvested. Her heart goes to a 66-year-old woman with children and grandchildren. Her liver goes to a 39-year-old nurse with two sons. One kidney goes to a 24-year-old married man and father of one, and the other kidney goes to a 14-year-old girl that had already done dialysis for a year. And then her corneas are donated to help two blind people. Connie cannot leave the hospital knowing there will be no service for Tanya. Something needs to be done. So she starts talking with the hospital staff and they agree to send Tanya's body back to Tulsa, not cremated under two conditions. A check has to be sent in by that evening to cover the expense and Tanya's husband has to give permission. So after Connie talks to J.R. Buck and gets him to agree to pay for the expense and pay for the funeral, Connie then calls Clarence to tell him that J.R. will cover everything and it's only right to honor Tanya's life with a service. Clarence ultimately agrees as long as it is a closed casket service. And before Tanya can be sent back to Tulsa, her body is sent by Dr. Charles Engel from the hospital to the Oklahoma City Chief Medical Examiner, Examiner Dr. Larry Balding. In the autopsy that Dr. Balding performs on May 1st, 1990, he finds old bruising across Tanya's entire body. 
fresh bruising on her back, a swollen left ankle, a fracture between her knee and her ankle, and this had not been detected in the hospital, we know, because we talked earlier about how they had found no broken bones. Her brain was also swollen and filled with blood. Damage was done to her occipital lobe and her cerebellum. On top of her injuries, Dr. Balding could tell that Tanya had been pregnant multiple times and that she had had multiple plastic surgery operations. I already told you about her breast implants. Um, She also had buttocks implants as well. And I know that doesn't seem like it would connect to the case, but it really does. There's there's a sinister thing that kind of goes behind it, but we have to peel back some layers of this case before I can give you the reason it's like very odd. Anyway, Tanya's death is determined to be a closed head injury and the manner of death is determined to be homicide. And this is not solely because her husband was super suspicious and giving everyone the creeps, because even if it was not her husband, whoever had hit her with that car had killed her and then they fled. So whether it was Clarence or not, this is still considered a homicide and a crime of fleeing the scene. We know it's during this time between Tanya's death and her funeral that Clarence voluntarily gives Michael to DHS for temporary care, stating he needs to get through the funeral arrangements and deal with his grief with a little break from parenting. We also know that Michael is never returned to Clarence even though he had given him up voluntarily. Connie had helped DHS with this decision because she contacted them asking them to take custody of Michael. She didn't think he was safe with Clarence. And she finds out that he's already in their custody in their custody, and she's relieved. She details her reasons to DHS as to why she does not trust Clarence, and it's jotted, jotted down taken into consideration. On Friday, May 4th, the funeral services are conducted. Basically, no one there likes Clarence, but they know they have to tolerate him through this. Connie can barely look at him, that feeling in her gut still telling her that he had something to do with her friend's death. Clarence gets up to talk and literally tells the crowd that none of them know her and that she has secrets they'll never know about, so they better just let things be, let things go. His voice is painful to listen to. Everyone's rolling their eyes while he stands up there on his high horse, literally yelling to them about how they do not know Tanya. While Clarence is speaking, the funeral is suddenly surrounded by police cars with their lights on. There's at least 12 police cars that pull up, and Clarence calmly walks down from the pulpit, walks outside, and hops voluntarily into the back of a police car. What's going on? Everyone is so confused. They're hoping police are here to arrest Clarence, that abusive husband everyone in this funeral is suspicious of. But he's not taken into custody. He's in the police car for less than a half hour when he steps out and simply walks away. Then the police come inside the funeral and they're like, sorry, no burial service today. We are seizing this casket and Tanya's body has to come with us because an active investigation into her death is still going on. Police may have not arrested Clarence during the funeral, but they were side eyeing him. They don't trust him as far as they can throw him, but they also don't have any hard evidence to arrest him on yet. So police are actively investigating now. They talk to Connie and she relays all of her concerns. So does Kevin. 
who tells the investigators that Tanya told him Clarence does have secrets that can put him in prison for life, but she wouldn't tell him what those secrets were. All Kevin knows about his girlfriend's past was that her parents were both killed in a car accident back, way back when she was a child. She has no other family members, and this is how she became so connected to Clarence. She tells Kevin that she had known her husband since she was a little girl. They grew up in Alabama and moved around a bit before mo moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. But how could Kevin ever know that this story of Tanya's background was a lie? How could any of them know that when Clarence stood up at the funeral to tell them all they did not know his wife, he was not lying? Huh. Yes, very, very strange. And the plot thickens. <laughs> As it does literally so many times throughout this story. This will happen 4,000 more times <laughs> and on deeper and deeper levels. This plot just keeps getting thicker. Yeah. When police do finally release Tanya's body and allow the burial to be done, Clarence is long gone at this point. He had left Tulsa. Her friends at Passions really took over, and I applaud them for the way they cared for Tanya and stood up for her. She only worked there for nine months, and they really show up. Tanya's co-workers, her boss J.R. Buck, and her boyfriend Kevin Brown all band together and agree that they would not let Clarence know where they had Tanya buried. He didn't deserve to know. And I don't think they talked to him anyways. Obviously, he has fled. He's out of Tulsa. I think they just agreed to this. Like if Clarence ever got a hold of them or if he ever came around asking about it, they agreed not to tell him. Yeah. And it's a couple of Tanya's fellow dancers from Passions that just feel so sad for her because she's buried there in Tulsa in a place she lived for only nine months. Only people who knew her for that short time were the ones visiting her grave. Her husband, who had probably had a hand in her death, literally dipped out of town right after the funeral. So Connie and another friend, Bambi, decide they want to find Tanya's family. Kevin was told her parents had died when she was young, but others were told she just didn't talk to her family anymore. Everyone figured she just wanted to keep her past private. Maybe they can find someone, even one person who is related to her. So Connie and Bambi start working with J.R. Buck, their boss, and he's able to look back at Tanya's application and find that her maiden name is Tadlock, Tanya Dawn Tadlock. And remember, she says she was from Alabama. From here, he starts searching. He's calling operator assistants and asking to be connected to phone numbers in Alabama that are connected to the last name Tadlock. JR is just getting on the phone with people and asking them if they know a Tanya Dawn Tadlock. Soon, and to JR's surprise, he is connected to a woman that says, yes, I do know her. I'm her mother. His heart starts racing. He hates to be the bearer of bad news, having to tell someone their child has died. He didn't know how to go about it, but he needed to do this for Tanya. Her mom has to know that she passed away. So he takes a deep breath. I'm so sorry. I have bad news. Tanya has died. She was killed in a car accident last week. And she snaps back to him with an, excuse me? His heart breaks for her as he repeats himself. I'm so sorry. I've called to let you know Tanya has died. Now she sounds pissed. She raises her voice, telling JR that she doesn't know what he's pulling here, but her daughter died more than 20 years ago. 
This woman tells JR that her baby was 18 months old when she died from pneumonia. She's buried there in Alabama. And this woman explains that she visits her daughter's grave often. JR is stunned, like, oh, we've had a friend with that same name pass away. I'm trying to find her family. I'm so sorry. But when he's off the phone and he talks with Connie and Bambi, everyone comes to the conclusion that Clarence was right. They don't know her. Who is Tanya? The grave that Clarence and Tanya had stolen this false identity off of was the grave of that little 18-month-old baby. This grave read, Darling Daughter, Tanya Don Tadlock, September 19, 1967 to March 24, 1969. Now Tanya's friends have no idea what her headstone should say. They don't know who she is. They just knew her as Tanya. So it reads, Tanya, 1967 to 1990, I'll always be with you. So they don't put a birthday, they don't put a last name because they realize this identity was stolen and that Tanya is not Tanya. I am still going to be calling her Tanya for now in our coverage because at this point in the case, no one knows her real name. So everyone that knew Tanya in Tulsa thinks Clarence is a big old creep, right? They are, there are obviously secrets, and while none of this necessarily means he was involved in Tanya's homicide, it's circumstantial, right? And here's more circumstantial evidence. Just a few months before Tanya's killed, Clarence had taken out two life insurance policies on his wife. Together, they would pay out $80,000 to the beneficiary, Clarence Marcus Hughes. Clarence calls up the life insurance agency literally within a couple hours of the funeral, and he apologizes to the operator like, wow, I had no idea I would have to call so soon after purchasing these life insurance policies. It's such a tragedy. And it's like, Clarence, that is overkill big time. You're trying to play this off as normal. Even bringing up the fact that you are calling soon after purchasing the policies, it's going to make people feel weird. So I'm sure the insurance worker is a little weary of this phone call. In order for Clarence to collect on the policy, the operator needs his social security number. He has to ask multiple times because each number that Clarence gives cannot be found. Clarence is flustered after a few tries with different numbers, and he's like, wait, I just came from my wife's funeral, I'm grief-stricken, it's really confusing me. And then Clarence gives the operator a third social security number. This time, the operator comes back saying, everything's good to go, you're going to get your payout. But Clarence isn't dumb. He thinks to himself, why did I do that? He can hear the tone in the operator's voice change when that third social comes back linked to someone. And Clarence knew it would not come back as Clarence Marcus Hughes. Yeah, red flag. Yeah, big red flag. Because the name that comes back is Franklin Delano Floyd. The system should have flagged the insurance company that this social belongs to a fugitive who has been on the run for the last 17 years. In 1973, Franklin Floyd takes off after a parole violation when he commits an attempted kidnapping and the rape of a four-year-old girl. Immediately after hanging up the phone with the insurance company, Franklin Floyd packs up and leaves Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's on the run again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Another plot twist. Another plot twist. This is only the beginning. (laughs) Like, 
this happens so many times in this case and that is why it's so boggling to me I have just learned about it this year so both Clarence and Tanya Hughes identities were stolen their life in Tulsa is a complete lie but now police know that Clarence Hughes is really Franklin Floyd however Tanya's identity remains a mystery It was Franklin who possibly murdered his wife. It was Franklin who kidnapped Michael from his first grade classroom. And side note, when Michael was kidnapped, police do know that the man was Franklin Floyd. We started in that section of this case, but that kidnapping happens years after Tanya's murder. It's Franklin who is fake dad. (laughs) Franklin is Michael's fake dad. Franklin is the man who raised Michael with Tanya, who we don't know who she really is, um, but Franklin is the one who raised Michael from zero to two and then at two years old gives him to DHS and then at six years old, Franklin Floyd kidnaps Michael. Literally through a lot of the time he's fighting for custody, police know this is Franklin Floyd, that he's a fugitive. He goes through prison. There's all this stuff. So, What's the background to that? And what other crimes did Franklin Floyd commit through his life? Who was his wife? Where did she come from? And where is Michael Hughes? We're going to have to dive into that in part two. I have to end part one right here. But when I say this is only a fraction of this case, I am not exaggerating. We have so much more to get through. So many turns you do not expect. It is actually overwhelming to me to think of how much more I have to pack in here. And just like, ah, it's, it is wild. So... I'm sorry if you hate multiple parters, but this case could not be given justice in one episode. So honestly, this is probably going to be three parts, but bear with me. It is a really tragic story and honestly mind-boggling that something like this could even happen. Thanks for listening. You know, I love you for it. Please make sure if you haven't to leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts and to share these episodes with your friends and onto your social media. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given by Charlie Waters. And our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Hi. My name is Charlie Waters, and today I'm going to be talking about electricity on my palate cleanser. Electricity comes from the electric flow from from electric power, also known as a charge. We we use electricity for our homes, tablets, phones, and I'm going to introduce my baby sister, that's one. Happy, 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 happy. Bye. To end this out, I'm going to tell you where electricity comes from. It comes from coal, natural gas, and oil. There's also other things that can produce it, windmills and stuff like that. Bye. Have a great day. 
The organization I'm going to recommend for you guys to check out and get involved with if you can is called Action Against Abduction. Their mission is to keep children safe from abduction. And you can find them at www.actionagainstabduction.org. This is a UK organization, but it sounded incredible and it's one I haven't covered yet. They work to protect children from the threat of abduction and their goals are this. The UK has the right policy and practice to prevent child abduction and achieve the best outcomes when children are abducted. Parents and professionals have the most effective strategies and resources to keep children safe and that we have a reliable and up-to-date understanding of the nature and scale of child abduction. They're aiming to make everyone's bu- make it everyone's business to keep children safe. And I am all for that. It is all of our business to protect all of our children in this these our communities. So they're working with local police, national government, school teachers, and parents. They're educating, they're just doing advocacy work. They're great. And one of the quotes on here is child abduction can be committed by parents or other family members, by people known but not related to the child, such as neighbors, friends, and acquaintances, and by strangers. And this happens far too often by people you do know. And this ties directly into our story. So make sure to go visit their website. You can get involved. You can contact them. You can learn all about their organization. I highly recommend you to just at least check them out and give them some support.